Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. In today's passage again, uh, well, if you would first open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 in your Bible. Um, In today's passage, the Apostle Paul is once again addressing the church of Corinth, which is in the city of Corinth. And the city of Corinth was probably one of the messiest, most sinful cities uh, in the time of Paul. And so was the church that was placed within Corinth. And so um, Paul is addressing the church at Corinth who are struggling with sin. And he's encouraging them towards holiness and towards happiness. As many of you know, your struggle with sin really happens when you become a Christian. That's when you start struggling with sin. That's when you start pursuing holiness in a whole new way. And so Paul is seeking to help them mature in their faith and grow in holiness. And he does this in today's passage by addressing the issue of temptation. Uh, Pastor Sandy Wilson gave a really helpful uh, definition of temptation that I, that I really appreciated. And he says this, he says, temptation, it's the enticement or allurement to destructive behavior with a false promise for better good through disobedience. Okay, I'll just read it again. It's the enticement or allurement to destructive behavior, also known as sin, with a false promise for better good through disobedience. You know, sin is enticing, it is alluring, and it is disobedience. And it is always, always, always destructive, but with this false promise that it will make life better. I don't know about you, but for me, temptation is not an annual experience. It is a daily experience, an hourly experience even sometimes a second-by-second experience. And so for those of you who, like me, experience temptation, 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 14 is written for our good and for our benefit. And it teaches us how we should handle temptation, how we should prepare for temptation. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 14. This is God's word. Paul says, for I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. 
We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I remember a few years ago, I went with my family down to Kansas City for Thanksgiving. Uh, it's kind of when the Jackson family reunion happens. And I wa- at that time, I was on a diet, okay? Or a, my, my wife will call it a, a lifestyle plan or something like that. But I was on this and I was staying away from carbs and I was staying away from sugars. And so I was making a game plan going down to Kansas City. And I thought to myself, you know what? I'll be really good every day, but Thanksgiving day. Thanksgiving day, I'll cheat because it's Thanksgiving. It's once, once a year. And so we got down there and on Wednesday, I was doing good, went for a jog and I stayed off carbs and sugars for breakfast and for lunch and for dinner. And I was doing really, really well until my sister brought out the pumpkin pie. The nice, warm pumpkin pie, my favorite pie in the whole world. And she brought out with it whipped cream and ice cream. And I remember looking over at my wife saying, saying, Trish, it's pumpkin pie. And they have whipped cream and they have ice cream. And I've been such a good boy. Can I just have this? And I I was waiting for her to turn to me and say, go for it. But instead she looked at me and she said, I'm not your mother. (laughs) I'm not your mother. And I thought, well, you know, my mom is on the way and I'm sure she would eat it. And so I'm going to go ahead and eat it. And it was delicious. It was fantastic. Pumpkin pie. You know, it's interesting because sin is kind of like pumpkin pie in a way, isn't it? I mean, just to be clear, eating pumpkin pie isn't a sin, not always at least. But sin is tempting, isn't it? It's delicious. Sin like pumpkin pie has some negative consequences as well. Let me ask you, what is your pumpkin pie? What is that sin or sins that you are so often tempted by? What is your secret sin that you don't want anybody else to know? What is that sin that is always sitting before you, offering you a way of escape? What is the temptation that you have? Is it the temptation to drown yourself in video games or in social media? Is it the temptation to steal candy or to surf the web in a way that is dishonoring to God? Is it a temptation to entertain thoughts that would be vile if they were known to others? Is it a temptation to drown your stress in food or alcohol? Is it temptation to buy your happiness on Amazon? or to compromise your values to fit in with your friends or to get a new client. You know what it is. I don't really need to give you examples. You know where your temptation to sin is, that specific one that you run to time and again, that sin that you feel like you just cannot break free from. 
Well, today the Apostle Paul is going to tell us how to faithfully endure temptation, both for God's glory, but also for our good. And so the first thing he tells us that we can do to endure temptation is to remember the Lord's salvation. Look at verse one with me, one and two. Paul says, for I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. It's interesting that Paul refers to the church in Corinth uh, as brothers, but also refers to Israel as our fathers because the majority of the church in Corinth was Gentiles, non-Jews. And yet here Paul is saying, listen, Israel is our spiritual heritage. It is our spiritual lineage. That's why Jesus says it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the reason why this is so important for us to understand that Israel is our lineage is because it means as we read the Old Testament, and we, as we read their salvation, we are reading our story the story of our family, our family history. And Paul says, don't be ignorant of this story of how God has saved our forefathers in the faith. And so he hammers home what happens here in the Old Testament. You know, it's so interesting. A famous pastor has recently said that we need to unhitch the Old Testament from our faith and from our teachings and from our practice. I cannot imagine how Paul would respond to such a comment. Paul would go nuclear. Jesus would go nuclear because Jesus was constantly quoting the Old Testament. It is vital for us to know and to understand the salvation that God has provided in the Old Testament. Now, Paul points us back to when God had delivered Israel out of bondage in Egypt, which is the major picture of the gospel in the Old Testament. And, and here in verse one, he says, for I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. If you remember from, from reading the Bible or from the movie with Charlton Heston, uh, uh, they, God led the people out of Egypt and he led them with this massive cloud during the day and then a column of fire at night. I mean, could you use your imagination? Just imagine how amazing this must have been. I mean, I mean, imagine if we went out behind the church and there was this massive tornado there. It would be awe-inspiring, but instead of it being for our destruction, it would be to lead us and to guide us. And so this is the awesome work of God for the salvation of his people. And Paul is telling them to remember that and that they also passed through the sea. When they got to that dead end at the Red Sea, you know how the story goes, but the cloud was there to guard them against the Egyptian forces. And then God split the Red Sea in two, like chopping an apple in half. And the people passed through on dry land for their deliverance. Our God is an awesome God who does amazing things for the salvation of his people, including for you and for me. Verse two, he says, and all were baptized into Moses and the cloud and in the sea. Paul uses the cloud and passing through the sea as an analogy of the sacrament of baptism today. It's a little bit confusing, but in the Old Testament, all of the people, including the households and the children, were identified with their leader, Moses, who was God's servant to lead them into salvation. In the same way, through baptism, we identify ourselves with Christ who leads us in salvation. Verse three says, and all ate the same spiritual food. 
God provided for his people. He not only saved his people, but he also provided for them manna in the wilderness that would come from heaven. And he provided one day at a time, except for the day before the Sabbath, where he'd provide double. But he'd provide one day at a time to be a daily reminder to his people that he is providing for them, that he is with them, that he is nourishing them. Verse 4 Continues, he said, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. After the Lord God saved his people in this miraculous way with a, with a cloud and with a pillar of fire and by splitting the sea in two, they went into the wilderness and the people didn't have enough water to drink. And so the Lord calls out to Moses and tells him to take his staff and to strike a rock, the driest thing there could possibly be on planet earth. And from that rock gushed water for the people and for their livestock to drink. How great is our God and his salvation and his provision for his people. You, you, you would think of, of all the people in the whole world, right? That, that these people, the Israelites, would not give into temptation. I mean, they got to see God split a sea and walk through on dry land. You would think, no way would they fall into temptation. And yet we get to verse five. Nevertheless, even though they saw God's wonders of salvation, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown or, or slain in the wilderness. And the account of the Lord's salvation recorded in Exodus and Numbers, as Pastor Jonathan mentioned, and as we'll read later in this passage, the, the people of the Lord grumbled against the Lord time and time again and grumbled against his servant Moses and Aaron as well. Even after they saw God do such great things, they forgot quickly and they whined and they complained. They were entitled children who thought that they deserved everything, even though they've already gotten the best thing. You see, one of the secrets to resisting sin is not simply to resist our sinful desires and passions, but rather it is to remember and rejoice in God's salvation to delight yourself in the awesome and mighty God who has saved his people and who provides for his people. That is where power over temptation comes. Let me give you an example. This week, I bought a, a used pickup truck from a private owner, and I went over to go test drive the pickup truck, and when the owner handed me the keys, he gave me this little lanyard with the keys on it, and this little lanyard says, I love Jesus. And so I, as I started up the truck, I said, you love Jesus? And he was Puerto Rican. And so in his broken English, he goes, yes, I love Jesus. Or that's a really bad Puerto Rican accent. But anyways, he would say, yes, I love Jesus. And I said, I love Jesus too. And he's like, oh, yeah. I said, when did you, when did you come to love Jesus? And, and he said, oh, two years ago. You, I'm not going to do the accent anymore because I struggle with that. But he's like, two years ago, you know, I, I, I became a Christian. And I said, oh, that's amazing. Tell me the story. And so he's telling me about how... When he was in Puerto Rico, that he would get in fights a lot. Uh, he was actually a boxer, boxer, but would do street fighting a lot. He also said that he was running from the police, that he was into drugs, and, and all these other really horrible things. And, and I remember when we were driving, he actually said, you know, I used to think when I had a lot of cash on me, it made me feel big, it made me feel important. He goes, but now I don't need cash because I have Jesus, right? 
And, and so the question is, what, what was it that made those other passions diminish in his life? Was it that he was simply trying to suppress them and hold them down? No, it's because those passions were replaced by a greater passion. It's because he found that his story was actually in a part of a greater story, the story of God's salvation. You see, a greater passion is never replaced by a lesser passion. And Paul in this passage is saying, remember the greatness of our God, the greatness of our salvation throughout history. Let him be your supreme passion that triumphs over all other passions. And so how do we stand up against temptation in our secret sin struggles? It's by remembering the salvation of the Lord. Now, how do we remember the salvation of the Lord? Well, it's as Paul tells us here, read the Bible. Study his stories of salvation and deliverance. Yes, even in the Old Testament. But also testify. Testify to one another. Have them testify to you. I can't tell you how encouraged I was by my friend who sold me this car who said, I love Jesus and told me his story and how that encouraged me in my heart to worship and to glorify and to live for God even more. And so study the stories of salvation. Tell the stories of salvation to one another. Remember the Lord's salvation. That's the first way we endure temptation. The second is to regard the Lord's warning. Verse five, Paul says, again, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown or lay slain in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, as warnings for us, that we might not desire or lust after evil as they did. Again, Paul is talking about those who have seen the salvation of the Lord in, in wonderful and mighty and majestic ways, those who have been baptized into Moses through the cloud and through the seas, those who have had provisions made for them every day through manna in the wilderness. And yet still, even though they saw all of these wonders of God's salvation and provision, they still did evil against the Lord. And the Lord was not pleased. And because of their sin, because of their rebellion, there was consequences. They laid waste in the wilderness. This is a strong warning to any of us who are part of Christ's church today. To any of us who might be tempted to think, you know what, I am saved by grace. I am received. I am accepted by the Lord. He has saved me. He has delivered me. And so now I can just go sin like crazy. Because it doesn't matter, because God extends his grace to me, which is completely true, he does. But these verses tell us that God is serious about our sin. God is serious about our holiness. So much so that he is willing to discipline us for our good. Verse 7 continues, it says, Do not be idolaters as some of them were. And as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now Paul is not speaking against 
eating and drinking and playing. He's actually building a case that's going to come next week that we'll talk much more about in terms of them actually going into houses of idol worship and eating there. And so we'll cover that more next week. But he continues in verse 8. He says, We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. This event is recorded in Numbers 25, and in Numbers 25, we're told that Israel began to whore after the daughters of Moab. And as a result, as as Paul says here, 23,000 of them died. You know, sexual sin was rampant in Israel. It was rampant in Corinth. It is rampant in Green Bay, Wisconsin. There is nothing new under the sun. I know today there are apps where you can simply swipe right or swipe left to hook up with somebody else. There are ads on Craigslist where people are looking for one night stands. People are having marital relationships with a boyfriend or a girlfriend. You can go to a a hotel TV or the internet and in a matter of minutes fill your mind with sexual garbage. You see, we often make the mistake that when God does not strike us dead when we pursue sin, that God must be okay with our sin. But here's the thing, and listen closely to this. We must never mistake God's patience for God's permission. We must never mistake God's patience with God's permission. You know, Paul referenced what happens in Numbers 25 to remind the Corinthians and us that God does not take sexual sin lightly. God righteously killed 23,000 sexually deviant people because God hates sexual sin. And the only reason why God does not strike us dead is because of his mercy. Because God has chosen to show you grace. Verse 9, he continues, says, We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer, talking about the angel of death, which was a servant of the Lord in the Old Testament to carry out his justice. But notice here in verse nine, Paul understands Christ as being present in the Old Testament. So much so that when Israel sinned, they were putting Christ himself to the test, it says. And we'll get back to that here in a little bit. But Paul in this passage is referring to Numbers 21, that Israel is wandering in the wilderness and just after the Lord fought for them and defeated the Canaanites on their behalf, that the Lord, it says in Numbers 21, and and the people spoke against God and against Moses, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food, talking about the food that God had provided. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. Why did they die? They died because they grumbled against the Lord even though God delivered them, even though God had provided for them, even though God gave them water out of a rock, they grumbled and they complained. They were entitled, bratty, unthankful children. Again, I don't know about you, but I see myself with Israel. I can identify with them. I know I have a grumbling spirit inside of me. It seems like it's even been more present over the past few days. Just driving here to church, I was passing by Quick Trip and I saw parked there a, a pickup truck with a, with a pop-up camper on the back. And I thought to myself, you know, I'd probably rather be in that guy's pickup truck than in my pickup truck. 
which is horrible, right? I'm grumbling against the Lord. Or I can grumble because my kids don't behave the way I want them to or because because people in church are difficult or because I can't afford the pickup truck I really want. I have a grumbling heart and this is a warning against a grumbling and complaining heart because when we're grumbling, what it means is we're not giving thanks to God for the very things that he has provided for us, the amazing and wonderful things that he has provided for us. Grumbling is not a small sin. The sin of grumbling sent many to graves amongst Israel. Verse 11 continues. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction as a warning on whom the end of the ages has come. Paul continually says throughout his writings that that we are in the end of the ages, that the end of the ages is from between Christ's first coming and second coming. And he says, as those who are in the end of the ages, we should be ready for when Christ returns. We should not put Christ to the test, he said. What does it mean to put Christ to the test? What does that mean to put God to the test? Well, think of it this way. This is an illustration I, I think I've shared before, um, but it's, it's a time where I was really uh, dumb. Can I say that? I was a dumb kid, and, and I went up to my elementary school, and it was winter, and so the pond was mostly frozen over, but there was open water right in the middle, okay? And I thought to myself, I'm going to walk on this ice until it cracks. I'm going to test it and see how much it can hold up my stupidity, right? And so I'm walking out on this ice, and eventually it did crack, and when it cracked, I fell through the ice and went right into the water. Sometimes this is what we do with sin, isn't it? We say, I want to see how much I can sin. I just want to take a little bit here, a little bit there, before I see when are there real consequences to the sin. And so we are putting God to the test. We are putting Christ to the test, saying, all right, when is he going to discipline me? When am I going to suffer the consequences for my sin? But what Paul is saying here is that we shouldn't test God to see how far we can sin before we're going to suffer consequences. Rather, we should pursue righteousness. We should pursue God. We should turn in the other directions and run towards the God of our salvation. And so Christian, don't toy around with sin. Don't see how much sin you can get away with. Pursue Christ. Pursue righteousness. Pursue real joy. So how do we endure temptation? Remember the Lord's salvation. Study in his word. Tell testimonies of his salvation. Regard the Lord's warning. Know that he disciplines those he loves who take sin lightly and We must never mistake God's patience for God's permission. Finally, we must rely on the Lord's faithfulness. Verse 12, Paul says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Right here, Paul is warning us against what the world would tell us to do. The world would say, listen, if you want to overcome certain temptation or certain addictions in your life, just believe in yourself. Believe that you can do it. And Paul is warning us against self-confidence here because we do not have the power or capability to overcome sin on our own. And so Paul is not encouraging us towards self-confidence, but God-confidence, that the God who lives within us has the power. That's right, amen. That the God within us has the power to overcome the sin, but we don't. And so we should depend upon God. Not willpower, but God power. Verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. 
I love this passage because in my experience as a pastor, whenever I'm talking to people about their sin, they will always think that they are the loophole, that they are the exception, that they struggle with certain sin that nobody else in our congregation struggles with, or that they struggle with sin to a greater degree than anyone else in our congregation struggles with sin. And so people always think that they're the loophole, that they're the exception to what God says here. And so what happens is people start to isolate. They start to hide their sin, which is exactly what Satan wants us to do. Instead of being transparent and open and sharing with others, that we might hear their struggles with sin as well and encourage one another towards godliness. He continues and says, God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, literally your power, your Holy Spirit given power. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape Why? That you may be able to endure it. That is the temptation. There's so much here in this passage. Just three things really quick. Just three observations. You can never say, this temptation is too much for me to bear. You cannot say that. Because Paul says, God will not let you be tempted beyond the power that is within you. And so whatever the temptation is, the question is not if you can bear that temptation, it is if you will bear that temptation. When you are tempted, God always provides a way of escape. That's the second thing here. God always provides a way for you to get out of your sin. I remember I was talking with a friend who doesn't attend church here and he was telling me that, that one, late one night he was on the computer and he was so tempted to go and look at some things that he knows that he shouldn't have looked at and he said right at that moment, the internet cut off in his house, just out of nowhere. And, and he could have persisted and he could have gone, he could have waited till it reconnected, but he understood that this was God providing a way out. Now, sometimes it may not be that obvious to you. Maybe it's a simple thought that comes into your mind, but God always provides a way out from sin when we are under temptation. Finally, Paul says here that we endure temptation or that we bear temptation. I'm so thankful that Paul is honest about our temptation. It is not a happiness or or it's not an easiness to endure temptation. It is a burden that we carry. But at the same time, God always provides a way out. God is faithful in the midst of temptation. He will not give you more than you can bear and he will always give you a way out. In the midst of temptation, remember, rest and rely on God's faithfulness. Let me end with just recapping and a few thoughts. How do we endure temptation? Remember the Lord's salvation. Study it in his word. Fill it in your heart. Testify about to one another. Regard the Lord's warning. His justice and his discipline towards our sin should not be taken lightly. And we must never mistake God's patience with God's permission. And then finally, rely on the Lord's faithfulness who will not let you be tempted beyond your Holy Spirit power and who will always give you a way out. That is how we defend against sin in the midst of temptation. But what is probably even a more important question is why? Why should we endure temptation, especially when giving in is so much easier? And Paul says here in verse 14, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. You see, sin is always idolatry. Sin is always treason against the God who saved you. It is always worshiping another God besides the Lord God. It's worshiping the God of power or of money or of romance or sports or whatever else. And so whenever we sin, 
Whatever we do in sin, we're always breaking the first commandment of God. You see, in Exodus 20, when God gives the Ten Commandments, he says, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I delivered you, I saved you, I rescued you. And then he says, you shall have no other gods before me. You see, God not only saves his people from slavery and bondage, and sin and death. He not only saves us from those things, more importantly, he saves us unto himself that we may worship and enjoy him as our God. In Hebrews 12, 2, Jesus, it says, Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured, same word that we use for temptation, endured the cross, despising the shame. What was the joy set before Jesus that made him endure the cross? Was it the praise of heaven above? It couldn't be. He already had that. Was it a perfect relationship with his heavenly father? Was that the joy set before him for enduring the cross? It couldn't be that either because he already had a perfect relationship with his heavenly father. What was the joy Jesus could only get by enduring the cross? It was you. It was me. It's the only thing he did not have. It was the joy that was set before him that made him endure the cross. Why should we endure temptation when it is so difficult to endure it? Jesus endured the agony of the cross to enjoy you. And Jesus is calling you to endure the agony of temptation so that you might more fully enjoy him. That's why we endure temptation that we might grow closer with the God of our salvation who is the joy of our salvation. Let's pray. Lord God, we confess that we often fail in the midst of temptation, that we often uh, succumb to temptation and pursue sin. God, pray in the midst of temptation, Lord, that you would remind us of our salvation, that, you would, that we would heed your warnings, Lord God, and that we would remember that you are our greatest joy. And anything that gets in way of us enjoying you as our greatest joy, Lord, is not good for us. And that we would put it aside. Help us, Lord, to endure temptation. To not give in to it, but to endure it for the joy set before us, which is more intimacy with you. Lord, as we turn to your table we were reminded that you feed a weak people, that you nourish us by faith through these elements in our fight against sin as we seek to, 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 to endure temptation, God. And so, Lord, pray, strengthen us through these elements. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.